KAKU would like to thank the underwriters and sponsors that make the voice of Maui possible. Doorway into Light is a nonprofit organization on Maui. They operate Hawaii's only nonprofit funeral home and its only certified green funeral home. Since 2006, Doorway into Light has been supporting the dying and their families and offering community presentations and workshops throughout Hawaii and the mainland. Please support the businesses that, through their generous donations, empower free speech in the Maui community. Hi, I'm Bodie B., host of Death Tracks. KEKU is a listener-supported station. All of the shows you hear, like mine, are sponsored by you, the listener, as well as our underwriters. If you would like to help keep the voice of Maui talking loud and clear, go to kakufm.org slash donate today and join me for Death Tracks every Tuesday live at 2 p.m. Do you have a non-profit event coming up that you would like the public to know about? Is there an important social issue for which you'd like to raise awareness? Akaku can help you get the word out. You can come in and record a one-minute public service announcement for the subject of your choice at no cost to you. Slots are available Mondays and Wednesdays between 1 and 3. Remember, it's free, so call 871-5554 and reserve your spot today. Aloha, it's Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, and muckraker from bradblog.com. And yes, the host of the Bradcast. Join me every night at 5 p.m. for investigative interviews with newsmakers and smart coverage of the day's news that you won't hear anywhere else. Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock, the Bradcast, right here on KAKU, the voice of Maui. Sweet strawberry icing. You're in goodwill and just past that vintage denim jacket you spot. Miniature donut earrings. You lean in. Ah, that's the scent of shopping success. Because at Goodwill, every item you buy funds local job training and more. So bring home those donut earrings and bring home so much good to your community. Goodwill. Bring good home. Brought to you by Goodwill and the Ad Council. Gutsy Woman Radio welcomes the Wailea Healing Center to KKUFM 88.5, the voice of Maui. Listen to Gutsy Women on Fridays at 11 a.m. and Saturdays at 2 p.m. Wailea Healing Center is a sanctuary for healing and rejuvenation with acupuncture, massage, and yoga classes. Gutsy Woman Radio, KKU 88.5 FM, the voice of Maui. Okay, I'm Bodie B. This is Death Tracks. It's Tuesday, February the 25th, 2020, right here on Maui, in studio. Uh, my guest today, in studio, I'm going to read it actually so I get it really right. My guest is Diana Saltoon, Tun, Tun? Saltoon. a student and teacher of Zen. Diana became a primary care person for her husband, Robert Briggs a poet, writer, and publisher diagnosed with Alzheimer's. His death moved her to write about her journey in Alzheimer's with him. Uh, the name of the book, which I've been reading, is Wife, Just Let Go. And uh, uh, am I right in that those were his last words? Oh, oh, welcome to the show, Diane Saltoon. Let me, let me turn and make sure your mic's nice and up. Yes, um, am I too loud? No, I'll, I can adjust you from here. You could. You, uh, oh, by the way, you can adjust how loud it is in your ear, earphones by sliding that slider, that first one, uh, to make it work best for your ears, so that you hear it at the volume you want to hear it. And then I can adjust your radio volume. But you go ahead and introduce yourself. Well, thank you so much for having me here. This is such a pleasure, because I've been reading about what you've been doing. And I'm terribly, wonderfully interested, actually, in what you're doing. And uh, the end of life is so important to all, each and every one of us, especially me. Um, in the winter, I believe, my own life. And so thank you. I, I, I so appreciate being here. Thank oh, great. You. Oh, great. Glad to, I'm very glad to have you here. And I, I, uh, uh, I didn't really know about your book until you sent it to me, and I didn't really look at it until I really got into it yesterday and today, and um, beautiful. 
the way you weave um, y your poetry, uh, Robert's words, uh, and, and again, as a Zen student and teacher, um, the, your view, your understanding, and how you uh, how you communicate uh, your truth. So um, I'm 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 excited about uh, how uh, how your <clears throat> how your life unfolded in uh, in the story. Tell let's tell tell us about this story you've written and and why you wrote it and uh, how long how long were you married to Robert? We were married thirty eight years. That's a long time. It's a very long time, <laughs> <laughs> more than three decades, almost four decades of someone's life devoted to someone else, and. Uh, when, um, you know, Robert never stopped writing. He was uh, just dedicated to literature, dedicated to the word, or words. And he, um, even in his later life, he would hold a pen or pencil just to uh, jot something down, no matter what, you know. And his last essays were very simple. But yet, I felt there were nuggets of wisdom in them, and I felt that they needed to be shared. However, they didn't form an entire book. They were kind of short essays. So during my journey with Robert on this Alzheimer's trip, I decided to join him and um, share my own thoughts, my own experiences uh, in that journey with him. and. It was uh, not always easy. The life of a caregiver is never easy. It's a 24-7, um, you know, consideration of someone else. It's, uh, that's such an important point because so many people say, oh, I, I want to die at home. <clears throat> most, most people would rather die at home than die in a hospital. And um, not, not many of us not realizing what a, what a big full-time job caring for someone at home really is and most of us are unprepared and not not maybe even skilled enough and maybe you get on the learning curve pretty quick but that's a very important point well if everyone could die at home that would be ideal move, move your mic a little bit closer to your you don't have to move unless you oh. want to move but now i said if everyone there you go. if everyone died at home surrounded by family and friends and loved ones that would be so ideal. Mm -hmm. Because love in the end is the most important thing in the world to experience in that transition we call death. And so it was my pleasure, I would do it again without hesitation, to have had Robert with me all that time. It was way, in a sense, um, a learning curve for me to bring into practice fully what I had learned in the way of tea, which is very Zen, and in the way of Zen, which is very tea. And so the two were like pillars that sort of held me mm -hmm. up during that whole journey. Mm. Yeah, just, I was just speaking to a yoga teacher and I said to her, what's the ultimate purpose of yoga? And she said to become one with all, all, all of life. And I said, and to prepare you for a healthy death, a healthy dying, and well to prepare you to care for someone in their dying time, and that your spiritual practice, your yoga, is going to show up for you then. And I think that's the purpose of really any spiritual practice, is to prepare us for our own death, and the death of the people we love and care about. Absolutely. I think um, the most um, sort of satisfactory way to die is to know you've done something for others and to have loved and been loved and to continue to love because that transition needs to be filled with love and light. Because to me, love and light are one and the same thing. Mm -hmm. There's no difference. We live in light and we live in love. Love surrounds us all the time. And the love that I'm speaking, this is what Robert taught me, was mm -hmm. to place a great faith in love. It is kind of a love that's so huge 
There's no measure to it. Mm -hmm. It's so unconditional. And that's something that I'm living with right now, and it's so enriching my entire being. So um, even Einstein said, you know, that love is the greatest force that we have in the universe. You got it, girl. Hey, let's talk about Robert a little bit, because as a poet and a writer, it, I, I would imagine it was extremely difficult for him to start to lose his mental capacities. Um, the only, I, I, I believe what kept him going, and he was so noble in his journey, uh, he never really lost it. I was never afraid that he would just wander anyway, any place, you know, when we were together. He would stay. I would say, Robert, I'll be right, be I'll be right back. I'll be just stay right here. I shall be right back, and I'd go for a walk, a quick, brisk walk, and I'd leave him in the park, and he'd communicate with the squirrels and the birds, and he would he'd love to look at airplanes for some reason, uh, seeing an airplane overhead. Perhaps it reminded him of the freedom that is around him and in the universe, mm -hmm. and he could plug into it. But airplanes and um, being um, by a body of water where he could feed the birds, I mean, that was a, a wonderful thing for him to do, and I kept him engaged that way. So his writing, though, and his love of words, um, he was uh, dedicated to the end to them. He never, uh, he kept a, a little bottle of whiteout wherever he would sit. When there, when there was such a thing. There is such a thing. <laughs> there still is. I mean, you know, he would look at a printed book and he would try to uh, correct or edit to the end, you know, refine, try to refine mm -hmm. a sentence or a word or something. A wordsmith. Yeah. He, he never lost it. You know, he, and like I said, his essays at the end were rather profound to me, especially when he talked about aging and the positive aspects of aging. Um, oh, well, we'll get there. I w I'd love to explore yeah. that with you. Uh, why don't you give us a little um, background story to if you were married 38 years? So you is that like we're talking about the 1970s? Yes. Um, in uh, <clears throat> sort of the late 70s, I sort of wrote or tried to write a novel because I lived on a houseboat at the time in San Francisco. And my neighbor felt sorry for me and he was a great friend of Robert's, as a matter of fact. He was Robert's sort of um, uh, uh, tax man, or whatever you call them, you know, that took care of his accounts. And Bill, my next-door neighbor, worked for a very important um, uh, accountant firm. And Robert knew the owner of that firm and had a big office downtown and everything. But Bill was assigned to Robert because Robert had a very small publishing business. It wasn't a big one. And he was first a literary agent. So I was introduced to him because my neighbor, who knew Robert, felt so sorry for me. I had spent about a year trying to write this book on an old-fashioned portable typewriter that you could carry around with you. And of course in those days there weren't Xerox machines or computers. So I had the manuscript and I made an appointment to see Robert downtown in San Francisco. He lived in this, um, well, you know, the marina area mm -hmm. in town. So I rang his bell and he opens the door and takes me up into his apartment and I absolutely fell in love with it. It was you just fell in love with the apartment? With the apartment, yes. <laughs> it was surrounded with wonderful books. You, and you didn't marry him for his apartment, did you? Um, oh. Listen, you no, no, no. You didn't no. answer that right away. <laughs> I'm usually sort of attracted to the place someone lives in Well, that's in fascinating. Somehow, isn't it? Um, but well, I was it says so much about the person, doesn't it? It does. Just about everything, you know? But I just saw his dedication. And of course, he took my manuscript. He was so polite. He poured me a glass of wine, and we talked about books. And in those days, we were both exploring consciousness. Mm -hmm. 
I believe Ramdas was around town in those days mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but that's another story. But um, we felt we had a lot in common. That was just, in fact, it was almost like um, meeting an old friend. I was so comfortable in that apartment. I just so loved it. Mm. It was mm. had the atmosphere was so welcoming mm-hmm. and rich with all of these wonderful books and authors I wanted to meet. And anyway, that's how we met. And of course, he never mind the novel is another story. But he did he pull out his big bottle of white out or what? <laughs> no. <laughs> He was very polite, of course. He said, mm, lots of work here. Mm. But I see another uh, book in you. Because we talked about what we did, and I told him about my love of yoga and consciousness, and etc., etc. Anyway, I did this book with him called The Common Book of Consciousness, How to Take Charge of Your Life Through... Uh, diet, exercise, meditation, and lifestyle. I think somebody wants to ask you a question. Or Absolutely. Yeah, uh, sure. Try. Uh, let's see if they hung up on us. Uh, very well. Go on, Diana. Yeah, sure. Anyway, uh, so Robert helped talk me. a little bit. Move your mic so you're a little closer to the mic. All right. So Robert helped me a great deal in my own writing. And I was also very interested at the time in poetry uh, short poems mainly, kind of like uh, tanka or haiku. And, of course, I was also ex- um, interested in the Asian cultures. And so we had this thing in common, but it was his love of books, his love of literature, his dedication um, to the written word that um, was like a glue that kept us together. It was too very beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. So, how long were you married before you started seeing signs of Alzheimer's? We were. Let's see. We were married. Um, I'd say three decades. Um, Thirty years, something like that. Something and then, like and that. then, what did you start to see? I started to see a slip of um, real um, presence in uh, what was going on in what was happening in the moment, in the fact that he'd take on some work and I would have to help him more with it. Um, His memory was slipping a little bit because I then had to take charge of the accounting, which was a mistake in a sense. (laughs) That's another story. (laughs) That's another story. But um, he uh, started leaning on me more, which he never did. Mm-hmm. And there were things that well, he would let slip up that he'd never do. And that was in a lot of his communication. He started uh, also not to be as communicative as he used to be. But his love for jazz, I believe, just sort of helped him because he realized he wrote this wonderful book um, that was before. Uh, probably uh, um, Alzheimer's um, visited him just before that. He wrote this incredible book. It's a classic of the Beat Generation Mm -hmm. and the 1950s. He did it. It's called Ruined Time, the 1950s and the Beat. And it's just a marvelous book to read. You pop in any page and it's like reading a flow of beautiful Words is this poetry. book still available? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. He, I, I kept his website alive. It's under ruintime.com. Ruin Time? Yes, the 1950s and the beat. That's the subtitle. But the website is ruintime.com? Yes, yes. And he started because he loved jazz. You know, he used to um, read poetry in San Francisco at the Jazz Cellar. Um, did you lose yourself in that in that marriage? In did, a sense, did you did you did you lose your your own identity or your your own uh, dreams or no what you wanted to do? No, he encouraged me all the way. In fact, he would leave his own work to the side to make sure I get published. I mean, he was wonderful in that way. He published or helped me publish. He agented my first book. 
the Common Book of Consciousness. I was published by um, the, or I believe it was um, the um, Oregonian, not the Oregonian, what's the, oh, it slips my mind. No, no worries. But anyway, it, uh, Chronicle Books at the time, uh -huh. of course, Chronicle Books got taken over by a New York publisher and everything else. But at the time, uh, the guy running Chronicle Books did other very important books and fun books and he kind of liked the comic book of consciousness. Uh, I like the title. And he did, uh, this part of his um, literary uh, publications was called Chronicle Books. So I don't know if you heard of it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, Phil Wood, that was the name of the publisher. It was quite a character. So Robert made sure I, I would get published. Good. And uh -huh. at, for a birthday of mine, he, he made sure I got a book of poems out. So that sort of went on, you know. Um, I always leaned on him as a great editor. Oh, gosh, she was a wonderful editor. And, yes, um, when um, things got tough, he turned to jazz. And mm -hmm. he had this terrific trio in um, Portland, Oregon. It's a great jazz scene in Oregon. And uh, they loved him and went everywhere, uh, just did their best to be with him at every event. Oh, he would read? And he would read uh -huh. with jazz. It was like a marriage. Wow. I mean, he... He was a beat. He was a true beat. But he hated the word, and he hated the word beatnik. Never a beatnik. <laughs> he had his reasons, but um, he was um, on... He was not into uh, the generational um, it was not the famous Big Five or right. whatever uh -huh. you know Kerouac and Ginsburg right. and all that but he had great um, respect for their works and for the artists so he was in the, he was in the uh, San Francisco area and yeah. uh, during like La Lawrence Ferlinghetti and yes. uh, all that he stuff. knew Ferlinghetti rather uh -huh. well yes and the city lights and yes the whole scene he lived in North Beach. When I met him, he was in the marina, but prior to that, he was in North Beach. And that's where the beats gathered, and that's where poetry was read, and uh, jazz was a great scene. And the jazz seller, he met some wonderful musicians. So that's where he got his root of jazz. And of course, when he was growing up in New York, he was also very much into the jazz scene there. Mm -hmm. So. And he talks about all this in his book, Ruin Time. And so he, um, his, you can probably get, I sh um, next time I meet you, I'll bring you a CD of his. Okay. It's called uh, Poetry in the Fifties. Um, mm -hmm. And he talks about poetry and his love of poetry. And it's accompanied with a saxophone player that stayed with him until he died. So, um, yes. There were many events called jazz and poetry and other reasons. <laughs> Don't ask me about the other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> so let, now let's come to the, um, at some point, did he go get a, di did you take him to get a, a diagnosis? Um, it didn't happen until we moved. It didn't happen until we moved to New York. Uh, he has a daughter that lives there, and he, he had a feeling that he was um, sort of losing it, that, his, um, that he wasn't well, and that uh, he needed to bond back with her. He, they were very close, but they lived apart for many years because she lived on the East Coast, he was on uh -huh. the West Coast. <coughs> and so um, when we were still living, and we had a home in Scapoose, Oregon, which is about 25 minutes from uh, the northwest town of Oregon, I noticed that things were not quite right. He wouldn't remember things that needed to be remembered. And one time he came home and gave me a fright because he'd parked his car and didn't know where he was heading for. What was his age at that time? I would say he was about... Um, 80, 
80, around there. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine noticed that when he came to visit, and we used to have tea together, that he didn't talk much. He wasn't his usual effervescent self. Mm-hmm. He loved to read, and he never lost that ability to look at a page of words mm-hmm. and still be able to read that word, that page and those words. And he loved to recite poetry, too. And Did you ever have any denial that, no, no, nothing's going on here? Yes, yes. This is, this is what I think most people that are very close to relatives or a wife or a husband or a mother or a dad, the first things we try to believe, how can it ever happen to this man? Mm-hmm. How can it ever, ever happen to someone who's so alive, so with it, so intelligent, um, who practices meditation and even yoga himself? And how could he, and who wrote the way he did, how could he have Alzheimer's? Alzheimer's never entered my mind, although... To be honest, I did take him to the doctor because I was worried about his mind. And he had a neurological test. And you know what they do when when you go for a neurological test. They give you three words to remember or a sentence or um, anyway. Then they come back to you in five. That's it? And they come back to you in five minutes and say, what were the words? And then they'll give you a, a draw the face of a clock. So, you know, you could still know what noon was Mm -hmm. and six and Mm -hmm. all that. And he passed, but not quite, especially remembering those words that were, uh, had been repeated to him. And Mm -hmm. anyway, she said he had slight dementia. Mm -hmm. And I was quite content with that. And Robert, too, he said, well, listen, at my age, I'm entitled to some dementia, you know. It was There's a lot of stuff 80. in our heads we don't need anymore. <laughs> he said so, you know, but it was a lot serious. And my his mm-hmm. his daughter sort of suspected something. And um, but however, we didn't have him uh, get truly tested and with an MRI, which is sometimes how they might be able to truly diagnose the fact that you do or do not have Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And even now, I don't think they have an exact way to tell if you truly have Alzheimer's. But anyway, he said, because he had seen patients before that and all that, he said, without uh, any hesitation, he's got Alzheimer's. And Robert was sitting right there in the room and what I don't like about what doctors do is sometimes they tend to talk to the care person that's with their loved one mm-hmm. uh, being diagnosed as if they're not in the room or as that third person. Mm-hmm. And they don't tend to talk to the patient themselves like a non-person. Mm-hmm. And so I was quite sort of annoyed with the mm-hmm. way the doctor was mm-hmm. reacting. And then too... I started to say, that's no way that it can be, you know? But there's, uh, that's part of the acceptance. And, but there was no way to accept that he slowly was steadily losing his mind. Was that scary to e- either, both, either of you or both of you? Um, very. He, in some, on some level, maybe because it's the nature of the disease, didn't seem to react to seem to stomp his foot or deny or do anything like that or say no you know I'm not going back there again or anything like that he was um, very I guess he was sort of um, like in the flow of what was going on he was very zen about it more so than I who kept in hiding. It was very hard for me to accept that this man, who was so with it and so intelligent and so um, sharp, sharp about everything, could have, could have Alzheimer's. Well, clearly, if you name a book, wife, just let go, 
and then tell us that those were his last words, then surely it was very challenging for you to um, not to be um, in the flow, in the flow, in, in full embracing what was happening. That was what he taught me deeply, that acceptance was part of being Zen. You know, in Zen we talk of three A's, awareness, acceptance, and appreciation. And the first one was uh, being aware of him steadily losing his mind, and that that was much, there wasn't much I could do about that. Although I even tried to um, enroll him in some clinical trials, and one of them was rather successful, except they only do it for a number of months, and then that's it. You don't get the medication anymore. So that had been stopped, and then the decline stand, you know, went even further. So and awareness was being aware, moment to moment, of what was going on. And that wasn't difficult, to be aware. Mm-hmm. It was acceptance. It was rather difficult. Mm-hmm. But yet, how could I not accept what was going on? Well, you could have easily not accepted what was going on. And uh, as, as you know, uh, resistance equals suffering. Yes, thank so you. So certainly you could have chose that route. And, and there could have been a lot of suffering around what was happening. And I'm sure that happens in many families. Um, and, you know, one couldn't stop being aware Um, but awareness also was not only just being aware of the situation but being aware of him being aware of how (coughs) I would communicate with him so anyone going through anyone having terminal illness but especially dementia and, and Alzheimer's they are so so sensitive to the tone of your voice, to the atmosphere they're in. You may say, I love you, but if your tone does not say it... I love you. It, it doesn't, doesn't work. doesn't work. Um, having music as part of the atmosphere mm-hmm. in the morning, uh, some kind of meditational soft music, uh, bamboo flute or whatever, um, in the afternoon, perhaps Chopin, because he loved classical mm-hmm. music. In the evening, of course, Coltrane, jazz. I mean, this is a sort of thing you can mm-hmm. um, enrich the patient's life with. Actually, that reminds me, I saw a beautiful uh, video about uh, people bringing in music to Alzheimer's uh, sections of the hospital where people with advanced Alzheimer's are given earphones to to the music they loved and and how that actually in uh, many people were brought out of the Alzheimer's into these amazing memories that those music pieces triggered so you you hit on something uh, on your own about how important music was for him and then you know I also contacted and and I relied a lot of uh, information um, on what I was handling or or what was happening to us um, in Alzheimer's. There's a lot of good stuff out there on Alzheimer's and and what to do. And there were a couple of books, and I speak about them in my book. I remember um, John Seisel's um, I'm Still Here, and the, the foundation that is um, called ARTZ, I call it ARTS, you know, in Massachusetts, where they actually um, uh, sort of um, paired out with uh, MoMA in New York, uh, mm-hmm. the Modern mm-hmm. uh, Museum and whatnot, mm-hmm. where MoMA actually um, allows um, dementia patients to come with their family members and uh, caretakers. I love that part in your book. Yes, that's in my book. And I can say how important it is to keep them engaged 
because art is something they never, never lose. Creativity is part of that brain that we, even dementia doesn't destroy. There's always that. Reminds us how much we need art and music, huh? Absolutely. And and if we can get keep them engaged, take them to a museum. I was very lucky. I mean, um, I wish all museums in the nation allowed this sort of thing to happen mm-hmm. where you could come um, sort of on the house. Uh, they would, um, one time they had a Gauguin um, uh, show. And uh, I mean, it was a way to have the patients just stay with the paintings, not have a lecture or not have... Um, whoever was accompanying us at the time, whether it was a docent or um, a curator, talk about much about it, the painting, but just waiting to see their reactions, their own feelings mm. about what they were seeing. Mm. And what came out was just, in, it was so interesting and, and so creative and so loving and so wonderful. It brought a new way to view what you were seeing. Kind of a fresh take. A fresh take, uh, coming mm. from no mind, so to say, which is... Very zen, huh? Very zen. And all of them were just, I mean, enthralled being there. And uh, I just, I, I do, do mention it in the book, because I think that part of uh, care, uh, caregiving is so, so important. You're, I, I like to say care person rather than caregiver. I heard you say that. You know, in uh, UK, they, they call them carers. Carers? Carers. I like that. I, I like that, too. So you, you've now mentioned your book a number of times. Let's, let's come there, but first, how long, did, how long did his Alzheimer's go on before he died? I'd say, um, you know, seven years, maybe. So, and what year did he die? He died in uh, 2015, um, in just before his um, 86th birthday. And what was that like you know, when he went into his active dying phase? Why don't we you speak to that a bit? Well, at some point, something at, something changed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, he was veteran. So have when a, we have a drink, if you need a drink, you brought something to drink. Yes, I did. May I? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Excuse me. Absolutely. I'm Bodie B. This is Death Tracks, and I'm speaking with Diana Saltoon, Saltoon um, who's a Zen practitioner and does the green tea ceremony. I love the green tea ceremony, and uh, speaking to her long marriage with Robert Briggs, who died of Alzheimer's in 2015. And he was a publisher, a writer, a poet, and uh, I loved it that he, he was a he was a beat uh, who who liked to read uh, his writings and his poetry while jazz musicians would play music. Um, I don't I don't think that call is trying to get in here. I'm not sure. Let's hold on a minute and see if that's true. On our policies and a schedule of work. No. Nope. Nope. I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure what's happening here. I think somebody's trying to call in, but it's. And getting picked up by the main desk too soon, but let's go on. So um, let's talk about his dying time. Well, um, when we returned, we we lived. We sort of moved from Scapoose to New York for three years, so he could be with his daughter, and that's where he was actually um, confirmed. Where it was actually confirmed, he had Alzheimer's, and then of course um, I stayed with him in New York and. You keep him. talking. I want to go out to yeah. the desk to straighten out the phone thing. Somebody might want to talk to you. Maybe Robert's calling from the other side. Okay. <laughs> Maybe he's calling. Yes. Let's bring him in. Go on, though, and talk. Okay. No, um, we were um, in New York, and uh, we were quite active in New York. We made some wonderful friends in New York and went to, uh, you know, uh, listen to... Uh, music and we went to the theater we went to the um you yeah you're back are you back are you back i'm back anyway i was just rambling about new york anyway new york was great but there came a time and i let me just cut in and apologize yeah Uh, apparently you won't be able to call in right now 
uh, due to the office, uh, whatever it is. So I apologize that you tried to call in uh, whoever you are. And thanks so much for wanting to call in, but it won't happen today. Oh. Okay. But back, if, um, back to you. And if you have questions on behalf of what you feel people might want to know, I'd be happy to well, answer. I, I'm doing my best Because, you know, if you love me too, I can eat up this whole time with you with uh, talking about Robert anyway. Well, no, we want to get into your book. And yeah. We want you to maybe read some, some yes, stuff out of your and, book. Yes, but the thing about um, the um, New York, of course, had a brutal winter. It was just... I think uh, that's so sweet that you'd spend the rest of the time talking about your husband. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> we, we went from New York. Uh, we, we loved New York. New York was wonderful. We made some great friends in New York. But his daughter was a very busy woman. She had that, just started with her husband, a business. And she did her very best. She was, she was absolutely wonderful with uh, the research she did on the disease and all the things that she wanted to help us with. But we really didn't have as root friends. They were important. The jazz musicians were important. And he never could start a jazz and poetry read in New York, which is really something he'd have loved to have done. So we moved back to Portland to be back with our friends. And it was at the time I felt things were getting truly fragile. Things were really getting, um, going in his later stages of Alzheimer's. Because when he was in New York, he was still sort of in the middle stages of Alzheimer's. He could still... Um, want to be on a, at the computer and have someone help him write uh, his essays. You what, know? what were the later stages like? The later stages when he withdrew more, he hardly spoke. And it was difficult to get him up. Uh, this is something I think most care persons have a hard time dealing with when they have dementia patients, is that they want to just be in bed. And if you allowed them to, they would just stay in bed. But you have to make a, a really concerted effort getting them up, getting them dressed, and getting them, uh, you know, engaged in life, in movement, in being out of themselves a little bit more than... They just kind of go into a cage sort of thing. It's kind of, I guess, natural to um, want to be in the safe place, you know, where you don't have to do anything. Just rest, you know. But anyway, here comes his wife and gets him up. But we came back to Portland, back to our friends who embraced us. It was a welcoming experience I shall never forget. And it was in Portland that I got him back into the Veterans Administration Hospital. And we had a lovely doctor who also was into geriatrics. And she took one look at Robert at some point. Um, he was um, sort of willing to go out and have dinner with friends, although he'd never eat. He'd hardly eat. That was the other thing that they do. They tend, some of them, not all of them, some of them tend to stop eating. And Robert at some point, actually told me, no more. And then it was shortly after that that he just would not eat, would not even drink. How was that for you? That was heartbreaking. So heartbreaking, I can't tell you. I mean, it was just something I knew I was losing him. But I wanted him to be alive and to be well. And when the doctor finally saw him, and this was sometime in May. Did you try to make him eat? Of course. I mm -hmm. got everything that I thought he'd love, all the finger foods. Um, mm -hmm. But he would attempt it. But no. Um, so he loved music. So whenever I could, we'd take him to hear jazz. And his friends would come around him. He loved that, you know. And he still loved to read. I mean, it was just amazing. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll show you one of the poems that he did that he just enjoyed sharing with his friends. Why don't you show us that? Oh, oh shall I? Yeah. yeah um, we want to get to your book. You've written a beautiful <laughs> book, and I, and I want to ask you about what that was like in even writing a book. 
Well, it's um, it's called Time and San Francisco, right? And this is this is in his later stages of Alzheimer's that he wrote this. Yes. Uh, well, he uh, yes, in New York actually he wrote that, and he actually uh, we went with uh, a friend of mine was a sort of a member of the Players Club in New York. I don't know if you know that, a wonderful club, an nope. old club. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he not used a club to. Person. Well, it's not really like a club club, but it it has a lot of functions and it has a. It was actually um, a, a sort of one of the things that Edward Booth, um, the writer, mm-hmm. all right. It was Mark Twain, and I mean they were sort of members of this club, if you want to say that. It clubs goes way back mm-hmm. in New York. It's an old old club, but it has a library room. And in the library room on the top floor, they have uh, open readings, so open mic events. Mostly musicians, like uh, sorry, not musicians, musicians too, but comedians. It was a great place for them to um, come and share their comedy, and oh, we loved it. But Robert did a lot of uh, some poetry readings there. So this poem. How, so this how, poem how, how, was uh, part of it. He, I said, Robert, twenty twelve. So he died in 2015. Okay. So this was us three years before his death. Mm -hmm. And it's called Time and San Francisco. Robert. Time is immaterial in San Francisco. It's an ageless city from the sky. But once you've matched the moan of foghorn with more than one unexpected streetlight... You know, you'll never be quite the same unless you stay or every year or so admit you have to return. Some believe veiled sweeps of spirits flow east from the ocean. These begin in the north below Mendocino and down south just above Big Sur before haunting skyscrapers and vanishing in the towering sequoias high in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Such fables beguile you for a while, but they're bound to be rich, and weeks or years later generate a smoldering loneliness that numbs the imagination and exposes your soul to what you are in San Francisco. Wow. Wow. Well, that doesn't show any signs of anything except brilliance, really. Well, he has a way of um, hiding his dementia. Uh-huh. I mean, it almost uh-huh. uh, was quite... Um, that's why a lot of people around him just couldn't believe that he was in the throes of Alzheimer's. Uh-huh. Um, as long as he could read. Don't ask him off the cuff. A question, and that's the other reason I I knew something was wrong way back before 2012. Mm-hmm. He had an interview after he had written Ruined Time. Someone came all the way from Germany to Portland to hear more about Buddhism and the Beat Generation. And I'm sorry to say the interview didn't go very well because everything was on the cuff, you know, uh, verbatim, um, mm-hmm. sort of. Um, Life, and that's where the Alzheimer's showed up. Absolutely, I I was sorry about that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, just just after, is someone calling in? No, no. Sort of just after he had finished his book, Ruined Time. Um, there was good reception for the book, and this um, guy from KBU radio station in Portland uh, interviewed him, and I told. Um, Paul, please have a series of questions so that I can um, make the answers for him so I can write them down because don't uh, make it sort of, um, what would you say, a natural um, spontaneous spontaneous event because it won't mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, when we went there and That's I had it. made all mm-hmm. these wonderful, he gave us the questions and I helped Robert uh, put it all down on paper, what he, how he'd answer. Well, Paul made it spontaneous. And it wasn't going very well 
in the beginning until almost midway, I flagged Paul and Robert was able to read and it sounded brilliant. The whole interview was wonderful after that. So that gave me a very okay, strong indication read. that he could read, but um, he couldn't um, sort of answer on, on the cuff the words didn't come. The words didn't come easily to him at the moment, that spur of the moment. So when, when did you decide to write this book, Wife, Just Let Me Go? Well, of course, after his death. Um, hospice was short. It wasn't very long. It was about a week, would you believe? And we, we had a meditation room or a room where I'd make tea and we would meditate in. Mm-hmm. Well, I converted that room into his hospice um, room. Mm-hmm. And the hospice people and we had care persons come. And uh, we'll talk about, because I think one of the most important, absolutely important things for any anyone going through this 24-7 business of care giving. Do not do it alone. Please. You have friends, you have relatives, and you have a way because there are professionals out there that can help you. And even if you have to go in debt, to help yourself, please get a few hours of respite every day. You need it. Because burning out, you can't look after yourself, therefore you can't look after your loved one. It's not going to be, it's not going to work as well as you'd like it to. Um, Don't be shy, don't hesitate, because your friends are out there for you. They're real friends. They'd be very willing to come and sit with your loved one, even for half an hour, to give you a way to uh, take a nice hot bath or, or take a walk. That is so, so important. And I was very lucky. I had some wonderful Zen friends from the Zen community. They were like uh, family. And they came and gave me a few hours of respite. And then, of course, um, I would hire uh, respite care persons mm-hmm. to come. Otherwise, it, I couldn't be with him the way I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Burnout's a real thing. But uh, because it's a way to really, really be with your patient... Um, is to step outside yourself, go behind their eyes and into their hearts, because that's when you have true intimate conversation, true intimate connection and contact, and that's where your connection becomes real. And that's how you know what they're feeling and how, that's how you, your tone changes. Your voice tone can only change when you're behind their eyes into their hearts um, that's when it's genuine and the love flows and believe me there are gifts to Alzheimer's in caregiving such wonderful gifts I talk about them tell us some of them um, well you, we've only got about nine minutes to go do we, so we oh my goodness my goodness maybe this is the way to end it it's okay I'm going to read a little it's, it's learning to be emotionally open to others to listen, to cherish memories. And that's what I helped Robert with. I I became sort of memory bank for him. Mm -hmm. So I uh, held the memories for him, especially when he was struggling to write and continued to write to the end of his life, you know? To have a sense of humor, accept help, take care of oneself so you may better take care of others, Recognize the importance of patients' familiarity in their home, their living space, their possessions. Enjoy the present, go with the flow, cope with the complicated, have a greater insight into things, learn a true sense of community, of a kinder world, to nurture, accept death, and realize the preciousness of life. These are but a few gifts in the Alzheimer's journey. The positive side of Alzheimer's is seldom mentioned. Most people think of someone with Alzheimer's as old, sick, and disabled, a person whose mind wanders, who forgets the names of friends and family, and who's rapidly becoming a non-person. 
we seldom see portrayals of someone living with a disease enjoying a concert, theater, or at a museum. So this is uh, one way to That's think. That's beautiful. You know what I'd love you to do, Diana? If you would, if you would email me that list, uh, we'll, I'll post this radio show on Facebook, and I'll post that list along with it. That would be really, I think, great. Well, there was so much else to talk to you about because I wanted to, sh- to share with Keep you uh, because we talked about the process of death and the end of life and how important that is and how love is how you want your um, person that you've been living with so long, who's given you so much, how you want them to be surrounded with light and love. And that's the best exit ever for anyone. And you want that for yourself. And if you can have them at home, that is beautiful. But if you can't, that can also happen because you can always be with them at any time. Anyway, um, the one person I wanted to bring up is, is very interesting. He's, a, he's a, a surgeon. His name is Atul Gwande. Have you heard of him? I'm sure, sure you have. Sure. Well, there you are. I've read two of his books and, oh. and uh, watched his film. I can't believe how, how, how wonderful he is and what the kind of work he's doing. Um, he, you know, he wrote this book, Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Besides being a globally recognized surgeon, writer, he's also a public health researcher, and he's very much into what I think you're trying to also promote. Yeah, very, which very is, similar and, and, you know, recruit me, because <laughs> I'm all for people, and myself included, um, dying in the best way possible, surrounded by light and love. And the knowledge that you are transiting and changing energy, you know, one of the ways to um, to um, sort of I would never say there's a cure for grief. Never, you live with it. It's a companion for the rest of your life. But there's a way to shift the handling of your grief or the emotional aspects of your grief. Uh, it can absolutely wipe you out. It can depress you, but it can also, with a shift, a slight shift, bring you joy again. You know, um, Willie Nelson, you know, he said, um, uh, it's not something you get over, but it's something you get through. And I so believe mm-hmm. that too. Mm-hmm. And um, so one way to do it. I played it, that song. I love that song. I love Willie Nelson anyway. Um, who doesn't love Willie who, Nelson? Yes, yes, he's, he's just so wonderful. And so um, if you shift your attention to the loved one that's gone, to the loved one you're grieving for, from yourself to that person, sending, well, two things. Grief is gently held and I'd say one way to move through and to go through is um, your loved one is still with you the love never dies it stays in your heart every time you mention their names they are there they're right there present in the now if you think of them with gratitude and blessings. You thank them for all they've given you throughout throughout your relationship and send them off with blessings of what you like. I mean, peace and joy and light and clarity and awareness and and, uh, abundance. Love them to death. Love them to death, yes. And believe me, it turns your grief around with a slight ritual, but we'll talk about that some other time. So I think we're out of time. No. We still have time. Keep going. You've got a few minutes. Oh, great, great. So, yeah, it's, um, oh, you know. It sounded like I just needed to get you started, and I was right. (laughs) No, go right ahead. You've got about three more minutes. Well, yes. You've come up with a lot of pearls at the end here. Yeah, it's just, I'm just trying to share that um, grief is not easy. 
And it's not something, as Willie said, you go, you get a... Oh, I have a question for you. Sure. How, how about the book? Was the, was the book, in a sense, therapeutic for you? Absolutely. Yes, I, I believe when you're going through um, all these um, emotional aspects of uh, losing somebody or seeing someone you love, uh, sort of um, losing their minds or mm -hmm. losing life, mm -hmm. the one thing that helped me was both my practice of Zen and my mm -hmm. practice of the way of tea, which I couldn't live without. But the other thing that helped me was writing, of course, because I met Robert through writing. Mm -hmm. And so poetry to me is also still something that's very therapeutic and that's wonderful to continue to this um, sort of practice. So jot down. You don't have to be a writer. You don't have to be a poet. You don't have to even um, think of, of what it is to write a proper sentence. Just sit down and jot down what you feel. Just what you feel. What's going on? Because that's so important. Uh, it places you also in the present. And one of the greatest, greatest gift of um, Robert's journey was the presence and the, just the now. Just being... He, he lost his mind, but he didn't lose presence. And so he brought me... No, well, that's, a, that's such an important piece right there. Right? So the now is the most important thing. He didn't thing. lose his presence, he even when he lost his mind. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I wish we had more time to explore, yeah. explore what that is about, because I think people would like to know more about what, what that meant, what that means in terms of... Uh, maintaining presence and in a sense um, losing the mind well but go ahead see, no, if, you no, no. see um, if you can do that in a minute <laughs> I don't think I can do it in a minute but all I can share is that if you are aware of what is going on right here right now you're in the present so he continued to have that awareness he knew where he was he probably didn't know where he was we're, we're, but his you're but, gonna have to come back on the show so we can well explore we that will explore that but he knew by thus breathing in and breathing out because that's a pra the practice breath. we did oh, the breath. we we did that practice together for so many years yeah and with breath. his breathing and with his actually acceptance his acceptance. We better accept that we're out of time here, though. I know. I'm sorry, but I could talk forever. No, you did. You did. <laughs> you did really good. I'm Bodhi B. This is Death Hi. Tracks. I've been speaking with Diana Saltoon, student and teacher of Zen, the primary care person for her husband Robert Briggs, poet and writer, writer and publisher who diagnosed and died of Alzheimer's in 2015. It's been an absolutely delight to speak with you today. And next time we come, you come on the show, we'll have to make sure the phones are working because I think some people wanted to uh, speak to you. It's such a big subject. This, I know so many people in fear of losing their minds, so you brought a great perspective to the story. So thanks for being with us. We're, we're probably past time, and this isn't even on the show anymore, but thank you very much. And thank you, Bodhi B, for having me. It's just wonderful to be here. Thank you. I'm sorry I, I went on for tangents, but I tend to do that. I Hi, I'm Bodhi B, host of Death Tracks. KEKU is a listener-supported station. All of the shows you hear, like mine, are sponsored by you, the listener, as well as our underwriters. If you would like to help keep the voice of Maui talking loud and clear, go to kakufm.org slash donate today and join me for Death Tracks every Tuesday live at 2 p.m. KAKU would like to thank the underwriters and sponsors that make the voice of Maui possible. Doorway into Light is a nonprofit organization on Maui. They operate Hawaii's only nonprofit funeral home and its only certified green funeral home. 
Since 2006, Doorway into Light has been supporting the dying and their families and offering community presentations and workshops throughout Hawaii and the mainland. Please support the businesses that, through their generous donations, empower free speech in the Maui community. Have you or someone you know been diagnosed with cancer? According to American Cancer Society, an average of 19 people a day are diagnosed with cancer in Hawaii. Pacific Cancer Foundation is a nonprofit organization that provides free support services for Maui's cancer community. Visit our website for a list of programs or to make a donation. We are all in this together. Call today, 242-7661 or visit our website, pacificcancerfoundation.org. Free Speech Station, KAKU 88.5 FM, Kahalui. I'm probably okay to have one more drink before I drive home. I'm probably okay. I open the window to stay alert. Probably okay. I just popped some gum in my mouth. Step out of the car, please. I probably made a mistake. Probably okay isn't okay when it comes to drinking and driving. If you see a warning sign, stop and call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzzed driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Maui's free speech station. KAKU 88.5 FM, Kahului Maui, the voice of Maui. (laughs) 